Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And welcome to 2020. This is our first episode of the new year. And I was trying to convince Dr. Carvelis that we should do a new year, new you episode. Uh, and he was like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't know what to talk about. So instead, uh, he's going to educate us on a block that actually is fairly new in the chronic pain world. Um, it was one that I actually never did during fellowship, and um, him being only a year younger than me started to get it, possibly because he was in a more of an anesthesia-based uh, fellowship than I was. Um, but Dr. K, uh, introduce us to this new block and uh, kind of tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so s essentially today we wanted to discuss the erector spinae plane block, and as you will, uh, as you'll see if you look at, uh, look at the literature on this block, predominantly this block is used in the perioperative uh, setting, and that's where a lot of the studies will uh, focus on is the um, uh, using it as preemptive before the operation or after uh, the operation for post-operative analgesia. Um, so, uh, as stated, you'll see a lot of the literature focusing on that, but interestingly enough, the first described erector spinae uh, plane block was for chronic uh, thoracic region pain, and uh, as an uh, interventional uh, pain doctor treating uh, chronic pain states, I've found this block to be uh, useful uh, for multiple reasons, which we'll uh, go into in, in depth in just a moment. Um, so essentially what we want to accomplish today is to define the block, uh, talk about the anatomy, the mechanism of action, the uh, technique um, uh, itself, and then just wrapping up with some uh, final thoughts. So uh, to define the block itself, essentially what the ESP or erector spinae block is, is and I'm going to be largely speaking from a uh, chronic pain perspective, just as a uh, forewarning um, heading, heading into um, uh, these specific subtopics here. But uh, uh, in terms of what the ESP or erector spinae block is for, for us in, in the chronic pain world, it's a, a therapeutic uh, procedure, image-guided, uh, preferably uh, ultrasound-guided, uh, but can be done with fluoroscopy, and obviously, like many blocks, ideally with both would, would be in a perfect world. Um, <clears throat> but it's an image-guided fascial plane block uh, where medication is delivered into a musculofascial plane, which is deep to the erector spinae muscles themselves and superficial uh, to the transverse process. This is going to be a high volume block, so you do want to uh, keep in mind your uh, uh, last or local uh, anesthetic uh, systemic toxicity, so uh, keep in mind your cutoffs with, with and without uh, epinephrine. Typically, uh, for this block, I'm going to be predominantly using quarter percent bupivacaine because it is a high volume block, so you want to use the lowest concentration of the bupivacaine uh, and one percent lidocaine. In the if you are at a surgery center or or a, a location that does have uh, epinephrine, then you can utilize the epinephrine to increase uh, uh, increase your confidence with the um, total amount of uh, local anesthetic that you're using. Um, but essentially. <coughs> Uh, uh, with that with that blockade that we uh, just described, um, you're going to uh, achieve uh, improvement in pain, pain control for the patient. And I think really in the chronic pain setting when we're utilizing this block, it kind of goes back to uh, one of the major concepts that we try to utilize in our ben uh, 
in our uh, benefit for these patients is that we're really trying to break the pain cycle um, uh, with these blocks. And, and um, there's not going to be much of a diagnostic utility in contrast to some of our other procedures where we know that the procedure not only provides a therapeutic but a uh, diagnostic um, benefit for us. Uh, but in these cases, we're really trying to decrease pain inflammation in the area um, and break the pain cycle. That's really what we're trying to accomplish with this with this block. You jumped into the weeds pretty quickly there, yeah. my friend. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's take a step back. Um, so help me to define a couple of things first because I want to make sure that we're all kind of on the same page because, um, I mean, we got all the way into, you know, percentages of medications and, and, and volume and things like that, which I think are very um, useful to think about uh, for people such as us who are doing this procedure. And uh, I, you know, I, for the record, I did have Dr. Carvelis teach me how to do this block um, because like I said, I did not do this in fellowship and this is not something that was a part of my skill set. Um, but let's, let's go all the way back to the basics. So we're, we have a procedure that is going to try to help chronic pain. Um, where is this procedure again? So obviously in the name, erector spinae block. Um, yeah. Where is the erector spinae? Yeah, and, and so I was just about to get to the anatomy there, but no, <laughs> thank you for uh, redirecting me. And, um, and so I, I guess real quickly before I jump into the anatomy, I just do want to give credit uh, to a couple of uh, individuals. So number one, uh, Dr. Ki Jin Chin um, has done an incredible, an incredible amount of work in regards to the erector spinae uh, block. If you type in that name, Dr. Ki Jin Chin, and uh, into YouTube, you'll find multiple lectures that do an excellent job of uh, describing the block, the history of the block, the technique of the block, and uh, his uh, lectures actually have some live action uh, ultrasound uh, images for the block. So that's uh, really awesome. And then the other person I wanted to bring up uh, as we, um, you know, historically is Dr. Ferrero because as you heard me mention, this block was first described for treatment of chronic pain and it was Dr. Ferrero in uh, 2016 who uh, described the block for uh, a patient with uh, chronic severe uh, thoracic pain that had been refractory to so many different treatments. And I think that's the the beauty of this block is that, uh, especially for our patients who have thoracic region pain, which as, as we know um, can be a little bit more difficult to treat. It's not like our patients with neck pain or low back pain that we're so used to treating and we have so many different uh, tools in our toolbox to try to uh, treat. Thoracic pain can be a little bit frustrating for the treating provider. And uh, so this, this patient that was described, they unfortunately ultimately ended up having uh, metastatic cancer to the ribs and that was what was causing their severe chronic refractory uh, thoracic region neuropathic pain but nothing had been working for this patient and then Dr. Ferrero uh, did the rector spinae block and got excellent results finally for this patient uh, and relief finally for this patient and so that's that was one of the first descriptions of the block itself um, so now we've kind of wrapped up with the definition and sorry to more directly directly answer your question so the block is performed at the level of the transverse process, and uh, and so a good way to think about it is that you want to be about three to four centimeters from midline, and and that's where you're going to get the best spread uh, in in this uh, musculofascial plane. Um, so the erector spinae is in the back. Correct, and the erector spinae <laughs> muscles, the erector spinae muscles being a complex of three different uh, muscles. And uh, those muscles, thinking about it going from medial 
two lateral being the spinalis, the longissimus uh, thoracis, and the iliocostalis uh, muscles, again going from uh, medial to lateral, um, uh, and those muscles running uh, vertically along the spine itself. Um, the I love uh, spaghetti is that would be a reverse going from lateral to medial, but uh, sometimes people utilize that mnemonic uh, to try to remember the erector spinae muscles themselves. That's a good tip for all the first year medical students trying to remember. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And, <coughs> and so a uh, little bit more about the anatomy. So like I said, um, the block itself is done about three to four uh, centimeters from midline. And then um, once you get the medicine into its location and it starts to spread, a good rule of thumb is that for every three uh, to four milliliters you inject, you get another level, another dermatomal level of spread. And so uh, in the both the cranial as well as the caudal direction. And that's one of the things you look for when you're doing the block is you want to see that lifting of the fascial plane and both a cranial and caudal uh, spread. And like I said, um, you'll get, for every three to four milliliters, you'll get another level of uh, spread typically. All right, so you have uh, a muscle in the back uh, and this fascial plane that lies between it and the transverse process. And you're putting medication there. And we've heard that it can help with some chronic pain and some, you know, this was uh, chronic thoracic pain. That was the first published study. Um, but so let's kind of t continue trying to step back from the, the literature and the technical aspects of the procedure and kind of add, you know, what, who, who is the person that we're actually trying to help with this, right? And then let's, let's do who you've seen and who the liter what the literature has seen in terms of patients. Um, and then, and then maybe transition from that into taking that broad set of people who uh, you've seen benefit for this procedure with, uh, and then talking about uh, what the theoretical uh, mechanism of action is. How's that sound? Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> so, so, so lit literature-wise, and in your practice, who who are we? Who are you looking for? I think that so this block ultimately ends up being incredibly versatile. So I think it can apply. Uh, to almost any patient, which is uh, one of the incredible things about the block. Um, but I, I would say the ideal patient is a patient with chronic thoracic region pain, whether that's due to postherpetic neuralgia or whether that's due to a chronic thoracic radiculitis or, um, uh, you know, I, I think a chronic uh, neuropathic thoracic condition uh, is probably one of the better patients. Um, to utilize this block for. And then the patient I would absolutely start to think about this block uh, would be for our older, let, let's say an old patient with post-hepatic neuralgia who's on Eliquis for atrial fibrillation and they're high risk for coming off their Eliquis. That, that is the perfect patient for this block because we can't do uh, other procedures, um, you know, because it's, uh, it's an elective, the, no, matter no matter how bad our, our painful conditions are, they end up being elective procedures. And um, sometimes it's uh, difficult from a risk-benefit um, perspective to take that patient off of their blood thinner uh, to do a procedure. And, and that's the beauty of the erector spinae block because you're just going through skin and it's a little bit of subcutaneous tissue and through some muscle and gently touching down on bone, not anywhere near major blood vessels or nerves. It's an incredibly safe procedure that a patient can continue their blood uh, thinners for. Um, 
So I would say that's the ideal patient, uh, uh, the patient with a lot of risk factors um, that has chronic thoracic pain due, due to uh, neuro, neuropathic uh, origin. Um, that's kind of the patient that I think would be a home run to consider this procedure. All right. And so why does it work? So you're putting a large volume of anesthetic um, into a fascial plane, deep to a muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this helpful for people? Yeah, and so you'll find some controversy in the literature here, especially because the cadaver studies don't necessarily match up with what we see clinically. But bottom line, if you take all of the uh, uh, research that's been done on the spread, and that includes not just cadaver studies, uh, but that includes um, uh, uh, procedures done under um, uh, ultrasound uh, and, and recording of that, and or even MRI and recording of that, if you take the net uh, evidence, what we find is that the spread actually um, not only goes out laterally to the intercostal space, but it also goes uh, anteriorly to the paravertebral and the epidural space and actually uh, treats the foraminal and then the sympathetic uh, uh, chain as well. Um, And so just to reemphasize, we're not just getting that spread out laterally to the intercostal space, but also anteriorly to the paravertebral uh, um, epidural uh, uh, region, as well as even getting sympathetic blockades. So you could imagine with our chronic pain states, um, w- if we can get uh, uh, epidural, paravertebral, and then uh, sympathetic uh, blockade, that, that can be a very effective procedure for us. Again, we lose diagnostic utility because it is such a shotgun uh, approach that we know we're hitting multiple levels in the cephalad and caudal direction and we're hitting multiple components of um, the neurologic system uh, so we're not able to pinpoint okay this is exactly you know what was causing the patient's pain like with a selective nerve root block uh, but um, uh, it's also nice that it's such a shotgun approach and, and does hit so many different components of the nervous system that we suspect are playing a role in, in chronic refractory pain. Um, That's a lot of things that it goes to. Yeah, yeah. and, and well, one thing I'll say along those lines, because you, you heard me say in the beginning that it's controversial, so there have been cadaver studies put out that showed that that spread is relatively inconsistent. Uh, some of the... Um, individuals who really uh, uh, support and try to promote the block, including uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Ki Jin Chin, who I had brought up earlier, he, he will uh, hypothesize, which I think is, is accurate to uh, say this, is that these cadaver studies don't necessarily um, match what we're going to see in real life for multiple reasons, including, number one, the the paraspinal tissues end up being a lot more porous in a live patient uh, compared to a uh, cadaver uh, patient. And then also, obviously, there's going to be a lot different uh, flow dynamics. The, uh, the, uh, in the A live patient who's breathing um, and having those changes in pressure in the thoracic region, that's going to be a lot different than a uh, cadaver patient who's uh, undergone all the preservation and the tissue planes are now uh, compromised and there's not going to be that normal physiologic uh, uh, movement and breathing. So um, there's multiple theories of why they think the cadaver studies are relatively inconsistent in regards to their spread um, and don't match up with the benefits that we see for these uh, patients uh, ultimately clinically. 
So we've talked about definition of the block, the anatomy, uh, and then the um, uh, mechanism of action. Uh, and and I really appreciate you bringing up, yeah, what you know, what's the ideal patient? Um, one other thing I'll say in regards to the uh, the patients that can benefit from this is that because we do get that very widespread and we hit so many different areas including epidural, paravertebral, um, this is actually a procedure that you'll find case series of significant benefit for, benefit for patients with radicular pain in the, in the low back uh, or individuals who have the diagnosis of post-laminectomy syndrome um, which again becomes attractive for us for those patients that uh, um, we may, they may be very sick patients uh, that are on blood thinners um, and or a patient that, you know, recently um, had a heart attack and had a stent placed and we really can't take them off their blood thinners. This then gives us something where we no longer uh, are in a position where it's like, ah, you know, we really can't do a, a transferaminal or an epidural, uh, interlaminar epidural. Um, this gives us an option to, uh, to potentially utilize for the patient because we do know that we get that epidural and uh, foraminal region uh, spread. Dang, man. <laughs> that was a lot of science. <laughs> um, well, uh, <laughs> I, uh, but, but, you know, I, I think that's, I know, uh, as you said, a lot of science, but then I think that's one of the things I want to em emphasize is the simplicity and the safety of the procedure ultimately. Yeah. This is, as, as you saw when you and I did the block together, it's a very quick procedure. And as I, as I had said before, you're just going through skin, a little bit of subcutaneous tissue, down through muscle and touching down on bone. So um, although obviously you still want to do the procedure as um, Te technologically sound and as ac accurately as possible, it, it is ultimately a very uh, simple block um, that can be done very safely uh, for the patient. Yeah, no, it's 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 awesome. I mean, it's always great to be able to have these options when you know, you know. Obviously, we have we've talked a lot about the different options that we have for a lot of those uh, diagnoses. Um, but like you said, not everybody um, can undergo some of those more invasive procedures, uh, and sometimes patients just want to start with something that you know might not be diagnostic but has the potential to help and has a, a pretty great safety profile overall right and so you know being able to introduce a procedure um, which you know amazing amazingly was just introduced into the literature in 2016 right i mean I'm, this is only you know three and a half four years ago at this point um to to start seeing this uh, within you know as an option to help patients I mean, you know we always like options and the more things that we can offer especially less invasive things always makes it uh better for our patients. Yeah, and there's definitely patients that, you know, for example, uh, if you're trying to talk to them about the doing like a sympathetic, like a lumbar sympathetic block, the idea of a long needle wrapping around and getting to the anterolateral space, some patients uh, uh, have a real difficult time accepting that or, or going down that road versus if you were to describe, look, I'm going to take this needle and gently go down and touch, uh, touch down a few centimeters underneath the skin and spread a large volume there, that a lot of times a, a patient's going to respond uh, better to that if you think that the procedure can still provide them a benefit. Cool. Uh, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you educating me and introducing me to this block. Um, I think it's a, a, a fantastic tool that we, you know, obviously have, you know, a, another, another way that we can help patients, especially ones that, like you said, otherwise we wouldn't be able to get to. Um, anything last that you had? No, I, no, I think 
that last uh, part you mentioned, I think that's the key thing that we wanted to uh, bring up is that you know this is this is a block that still is undergoing um, uh, refining in terms of you know completely fully understanding exactly its mechanism of action and the and the ideal patients, especially in the chronic pain uh, world, in terms of the ideal patients that we're going to be treating. But in the meantime, it's a versatile and safe uh, uh, procedure that for those higher risk patients should be something that um, can be considered. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thank you for the education. Uh, that's your science update for this week. And um, we'll talk to you guys soon. Stay tuned for that legal disclaimer. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.